This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on some important issues related to both communicable and non-communicable diseases, from HIV to osteoporosis to thromboembolism. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, Emma Scott, Section Editor, and Dr. Matt Castledon, Section Editor and GP, who all work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Abigail and osteoporosis in the first instance. Abigail, tell us about advice for managing patients with osteoporosis during the pandemic. Well, the European Society of Endocrinology has published some guidance on managing these patients. And their advice is patients who take six-monthly denosumab should continue and self-administration can be considered where appropriate. There's no need to pre-check serum vitamin D and calcium levels, and empirical treatment with colocalciferol can be considered for all patients. No new patients should be started on solidronic acid, teriparatide, abaloparatide, or romosozumab, and that's because the potential adverse effects of the therapies might be confused with symptoms of COVID-19. Now, if patients are already taking one of these drugs, then solidronic acid can be delayed for six to nine months during the pandemic. Patients who are taking teriparatide, abaloparatide or romosozumab should continue. However, the guidelines say that periods of discontinuation, even if that's for many weeks, are unlikely to affect the long-term benefit of fracture risk reduction. All patients should be educated on the importance of making sure they get enough calcium and vitamin D, either through supplements or diet, and taking regular exercise. Okay, thank you. And let's move on to migraine. Tell us about advice for managing patients with migraine. The European Academy of Neurology has published some advice on this, and they remind us that patients should pay particular attention to managing lifestyle and dietary triggers, many of which might be altered by the pandemic. So, for example, stress, diet, alcohol consumption and sleep. They also say that social isolation, anxiety or depression might affect medication overuse. And the guidelines remind us that use of medications for treating acute migraine should be limited to fewer than two times per week. Finally, they say that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs should be used as needed. They have established efficacy in the treatment of acute migraine and there's no evidence that they can exacerbate symptoms of COVID-19. Paracetamol and triptans may also be used as required for acute attacks. Okay, thanks, Abigail. That's that's really helpful. Now let's move on to Emma and HIV. Emma, can you tell us about guidance for managing patients with HIV uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic? So far, there's no evidence that people with HIV have a higher COVID-19 infection rate or a different disease course, but many people living with HIV are older and have other chronic medical conditions such as heart or lung disease that increase the risk for more severe COVID-19 infection. 
So guidelines from the US and Europe and the UK uh, recommend that all people with HIV should consider taking extra precautions, especially if their HIV infection is advanced or poorly controlled. Specific recommendations include making sure influenza and pneumococcal vaccinations are up to date and encouraging patients to stop smoking. US guidelines also recommend that patients keep at least a 30-day supply of their antiretroviral therapy and ideally a 90-day supply. Guidelines advise not making changes in antiretroviral therapy to prevent or treat COVID-19 and pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent HIV should also continue to be taken as directed. There's no evidence it's effective against COVID-19. The guidelines also remind us that people with HIV have a normal life expectancy and a treatable infection. So for those hospitalised with COVID-19, HIV status and current HIV control should not be factors in decision-making on any potentially life-saving interventions or enrolment into clinical trials. Okay, thanks, Emma. That's really clear. Let's move on to Matt and new international guidelines. Matt, uh, the World Health Organization have recently updated their interim guidance from the previous version uh, dated from March. Can you tell us the key points from this update? Yes, the the key principles it describes are familiar ones. Uh, So isolation for patients with COVID-19 at a suitable location, infection prevention and control, symptom management, supportive care and organ support uh, for people with severe and critical illness. But there are changes in infection control recommendations so that it's now suggested that transmission-based precautions um, can be discontinued 10 days after symptom onset, plus at least three days without symptoms. And there's also an updated classification system uh, so that COVID-19 is stratified as mild, uh, a new category of moderate disease, severe and critical disease with management recommendations and recommended location of care varying according to disease severity. So obviously patients with mild disease can normally be managed at home uh, with isolation uh, and that means they don't have no evidence of hypoxia or pneumonia. With moderate disease, um, patients considered low risk for deterioration um, can be again managed at home uh, but there may be some signs of pneumonia but not severe pneumonia. And then the severe and critical categories uh, would clearly be managed in the hospital and critical care settings respectively. A key uh, element of the new guidance is a recommendation for prophylaxis uh, for venous thromboembolism uh, such as low molecular weight heparins and this is recommended for all patients hospitalized with COVID-19 and it reflects this growing evidence for a a prothrombotic tendency in patients with COVID-19 that has come to light in the last few months. These changes are summarised in the COVID-19 BMJ best practice topic and that continues to be updated on a daily basis. Thanks Matt and can you tell us exactly what the recommendations are for a VTE prophylaxis when in, in hospital? Well essentially the recommendation is for all adolescent and adult patients to receive some form of prophylaxis. So that would normally be pharmacological and according to to local guidelines, unless 
contraindicated. So, you know, mechanical methods are mentioned as an alternative, and it's recognised that local guidelines and the various pharmacological agents may vary. So, uh, you know, low molecular weight heparins are mentioned by name, but otherwise, you know, the key message is that some form of prophylaxis does need to be considered for these patients. Okay. Thank you very much, Matt, and also Abigail and Emma. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into PMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again.